episode of the Dog Clowns podcast. I'm your host, Sharon Newcomb, and I have got two sensational women with me today by the name of Jules and Shaz. I met Jules actually in line waiting for a coffee, and I do do other things besides drink coffee, by the way. So we were in line at a cafe waiting for coffee, and she'd already ordered, and she had a beautiful DJ with her, who is a magnificent grudel. Asked if I could pat him when we started to just chat. And the more we chatted, the more magnificent I realised this dog was. So calm, so serene, other dogs everywhere. And Jules and I just kept chatting and I thought, my goodness, this woman would be fantastic to speak to in a little more detail. So that's how we've come about our interview today. So welcome, Jules and Shaz. Thank you for sitting down and having a yak. Thank you. Thanks for having us. These two are living their best life. And I don't mean that flippantly. I actually believe that these two magnificent women are striving towards living their best lives. Well, we've, I've lived in Torquay for 17 years. I moved here when my children were young and my son was starting high school and uh, his sisters were a bit older so that they had the opportunity to go to university. A couple of years in, I met Sharon. And then after 12 months, Sharon was working in Warrnambool um, and we got together and we bought a house together. So we had that house for 15 years and we've just sold it. Just prior to COVID, we bought a motorhome and it was something that we had been planning to do, but not on that particular day. So planets just seemed to align and we bought this motorhome. So we've done some travel and quite a bit in Victoria, but our dream has to um, see more of Australia and travel with what was then our two dogs and then at the moment now it's one. It's just okay. DJ. So we had a little one as well. Yeah. And what was the name of your little one? Celine. Celine, as yeah. in Celine Dion? Yes. But she wasn't actually named after Celine Dion. The kids named her after, I don't know whether you're familiar with Summer Heights High, <laughs> Chris Lilly's uh, character. Yes. <laughs> Mr G, I think yes. his name was, and she had, he had his little dog. Little Oh, my gosh. Little Chihuahua Celine. Uh, so the kids said she's got to be called Celine. And, yeah, I initially thought, oh, my goodness, you know, yelling out Celine. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's funny because people do think it's after Celine Dion. Mm -hmm. And at the time, we had a little Maltese. Mm. She was called Delta, oh. named after Delta Biscuits because Jules used to work for Arts. We'd take the both of them into the groomers, and the groomer said, Oh, here's the Divas again. <laughs> Thinking it was Celine Dion and Delta Woodruff, which. Yeah. <laughs> that's fabulous. So, yeah, we, did, we hadn't even thought of that, had we? Oh, that's fabulous. I love yeah. that. So Celine was a little rescue. Uh, well, she found Jules outside a friend's place in North Geelong, um, covered in fleas and, oh. yeah, not in very good condition. But couldn't, couldn't find an owner for her. We did try. Yeah. yeah. So when you say found her, did she just show up somewhere? Yeah, I, it was like being on candid camera. I was dropping off a golf buggy at a friend's and I got out of the back of the car and I was getting it out and she was there jumping up and down my legs and I literally said, where have you come from? <laughs> and I didn't want her to get run over and I took her in and said, is this one of your neighbours? Do you know this dog? She said, no, I don't know. And over the next couple of days she went up and down the street knocking on doors asking people if they had lost her and yeah. we got it. She had no chip and she had no collar and we told our vet and the vet said, I think she's about six months old but we could not find an owner. Subsequently, several years later, we did find out that there was a bit of a breeding operation in that street. They weren't home that day and our friends didn't know. So we had her for four or five years before we found that out. So she was never going back there. Yeah, well. And so she was just a little little street urchin, little Beverly Hills girl. They moved into Torquay. <laughs> she escaped, found a way to escape. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, she mm -hmm. hadn't been living in very good conditions. Yeah. And... Saw Jules on the street and thought, I'm out of here. Oh, I'm out. I'm Sucker. Written <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she had her best life with us for 10 or 11 years. Mm. She had a heart murmur, so she'd been on medication and had to have teeth out and because mm. she was malnourished at the start of her life and mm. didn't have a very good start. But, yeah. Then she had an issue with her eyes and ended up seeing the top eye specialist in Australia. <laughs> you know, was, I reckon these cats uh, and dogs do better. What we do uh -huh. sometimes, yeah. don't they? Uh, yeah. She won the fashion parade at Salty Dog one year. Oh, the very first one that they had. She won the little dog one year. She had a little pink tutu that we bought in Manhattan. Oh, that's <laughs>
Well, she did live a fabulous life. Mm. We lost her oh, I don't know, 12 months ago now. Mm. So did she travel with you then? Did she get some trips yeah, in? Yeah, yeah, she loved it. She had her own camp chair. Oh. And, uh, she'd sit up in the camp chair like a queen by the campfire. And, yeah. and she was the boss, DJ knew that um, she was the boss. So how high would she be up to your ankle? <laughs> oh, she only weighed 2.3 kilos. So and she was, she was a tiny, 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 but very fluffy. So mm. she was crossed with a pom, pomerani. Yeah. So she was quite fluffy. Yeah, just the most beautiful little girl. And DJ's how big? How high? He'd come up to mm. above knee, would he? Yeah, oh. yeah. He's um, well, he can stand his back legs and put his paws on my shoulders. I'm five foot eight. He is a big, a big standard. He's a forty-six kilo griddle. And she was the boss. Not she him. was the boss. <laughs> she used to tell him off, and he'd just look at her and go, "It's not the size of the dog in the fight, is it? No. It's the size of the fight in the no. dog." It's yeah. <laughs> a classic exactly example. Right. Yeah. Actually, when. When Jules and I were waiting for our coffee that day, there was a tiny little dog there as well, mm. and it came over to DJ and was very excited, and DJ was just really calm, mm. non-threatening. Mm. He's glorious. I reckon he could be a therapy dog mm. because as we spoke, all I wanted to do was just stroke his back. Mm. It was very relaxing. Mm. I've often thought of that. He's, um, he's magnetised people. When yeah. my aunt was first diagnosed with dementia, well, probably just before she was diagnosed, I took him up to my parents and he would just go and sit at my auntie's feet and just lay there. And Dad, Dad was pointing it out and I said, yeah, I know. He's just, he is amazing with older people and he's amazing with little kids. He has his moments with certain male big dogs that he yeah. tries to, he, he's reactive. He's not aggressive, he's reactive. He'll bark, so we know that what those ones are. So the road but and I think it's maybe a protection thing because yeah two women and he obviously picks up when I'm sort of you know you a get bit, a little bit anxious yeah, yeah. he picks up on that I think yeah, yeah. so protective yeah. reactive bark just bark mm -hmm. looks out for it that's yeah. what you want how long you had DJ since he was eight weeks old so nearly eight, eight years eight yeah. yeah so these these two little doggos did a few trips together oh they did yeah yeah we would have done I think about twenty-five or thirty thousand kilometres with mm. Celine. Because yeah. everywhere we went, we took them. Um, we, didn't, we didn't go. We don't go anywhere without. That's not. And it was all within Victoria because it was yeah. during COVID mm. times, and we're region regional were free to travel. Yeah. Um, we used to get away for weekends and Mildura, Falls Gap, Beachwood. As soon as the motorhome door was open, <laughs> straight in. Yeah. So did he have a certain spot too? Did they have this spot? In the Yes. Motorhome, mm -hmm. as well as when you sit outside. Yeah. Did he have his own chair? He's so he, he, he did travel between us and we um, put his harness into the seatbelt. So he sure. walked between the front seats because um, Celine had the, where the other seatbelts are. So yep. she had the, the long side of the dinette. And then when Celine passed, we moved him to there so he could be seatbelt in. And now we've got a fridge between the seats as well. So okay. he doesn't like it. He wants to be back there, but he's better on the dinette where he's got, you know, Harnessed in and seatbelt in properly, better than being between us and in our seatbelt. Yeah. So yeah, he's um he's got his own spot, and the majority of the motorhome did. Surprise! When you say believe it or not, I, I absolutely believe it. Uh, they're the best, aren't they? Mm. The interesting thing that chatting with you both is that shows you're a police officer now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and you're still in the force, but you're looking um, to. I'll be retired as of first of July. Eighteen mm. years. I do, of course. Now, it goes without saying that that would have been an extremely challenging time. Yeah, and I joined late in life. I was 38 when I joined. It was good to have that life experience behind me because, you know, the situations you come across, I think it helps to have had that life experience. Bit of street um, cred. Yeah. Bit of sensibility. Yeah, exactly. Calm. Yeah. Mm. Mm, all that stuff you need out there. Yeah. So I did my training years in Warrnambool. I was there for five years. Um, then after meeting Jules, I transferred to Geelong. I worked there for 10 years. And then I went to State Event Planning Unit in Melbourne. State Event Planning Unit. Yeah. Okay. So that's like big, big events that are held. Yeah, statewide events. So all AFL football matches, the Grand Prix, Flemington, everything. And that's about... They the police presence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you so. you're just coming out of that now. So you would have been around for obviously COVID and, and what? Yes. Yeah. So on. I actually went into that unit around COVID. So there weren't too many events happening. No. But 
demonstrations in Melbourne every week. Yeah, okay. Um, and we were organising police resources. You know, sometimes you'd have 2,000 police. Yeah. And it was massive. Yeah. Um, because, as we know, some of those demonstrations got quite aggressive. And, yeah. Yeah. Everything. And, look, there's, you know, everybody has a thought about every moment of mm -hmm. COVID, don't they? And I often wondered from a police member perspective, how difficult that would have been to have to do what you did, as well as the people that wanted to get their point across, having to do what they wanted to do. But it's about everyone's had to come at this from their own perspective. Yeah. And the people behind that uniform and are mums and dads and, and partners and yeah. brothers and sisters and daughters and sons. Yeah. And I think sometimes that gets forgotten. Mm. So it's a tough gig, you know, yeah. to, to be first responding in any yeah. shape or form. Look, I was lucky once I was at state events, you're more behind the scenes, organising resources for the members. So making sure they've got meals, they've got water, they've, they're all set up. Yeah. So they can go out onto the front line. Yeah. Um, when I was at Geelong, I did work on the Ring of Steel, so the roadblock at Little River. Mm -hmm. I used to work there. Yeah. And that was challenging because just checking people's IDs and, and you just think, well, gee, am I in Australia? Yes. You know, here I am working on a border, blocking people from going where they want to go and that sort of thing. It's quite frightening, the concepts of what's happened, isn't it? And, and I think, you know, whether that's changed your thinking or helped you make a decision about what where you're going and retirement mm -hmm. and stuff, I imagine, I don't know, like where... Oh, absolutely. I think everybody has had that rejig of after having our everything you take for granted taken away from you, mm -hmm. not being able to have your family visit yeah. your home and that sort of thing, you know, and in hindsight you think, oh, that was all way over the top, but we've got to remember at the time... No one was vaccinated. It was all a new thing. We didn't know mm. what the outcome was going to be. So I suppose the measures that the government brought in were, at the time, to keep us safe. Yeah. Um, it's all right to say now, oh, gee, that was ridiculous, you know, yeah. but we didn't know what yeah, was going to happen at the time. I and guess now we're living with it because there's vaccines and, yeah. you know. I think the best part of that too is is being courageous enough to say, well, we're here now, so we'll reassess now. Yeah. What do we know now differently? Would we do all that again? Maybe not no. with all that insight. Yeah, so, exactly right. We learn from these things. Yeah. So, But, yeah, I think having things that you take for granted taken away, it has made me reassess things and as well as a lot of other people probably. Yeah. And life has changed, you know. People have got the option now to work from home if they can. Yeah, yeah. And people are now valuing that work-life balance more. I think it's mm. made people realise, gee, we really need to enjoy life. So is that one of the things that you really felt yeah. has happened for you to make oh, a decision absolutely. to retire now? Yeah. Oh, look, and I've been diagnosed with osteoarthritis in my back. Mm -hmm. So I was getting to the point where I couldn't wear the equipment belt and all that sort of stuff. And I just didn't want to be one of those people that, Oh, I can't do that. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah, I'd rather just pull the pin. Yep. You know, work and then fill the position with somebody else that's capable sure. of doing it. And the time just felt right that, you know, yeah. Jules is lucky. She's got a very flexible job. She can work from anywhere. Mm -hmm. Not that she wants to keep doing that forever. Do I you think know? It's just, yeah, all falling into place. The belt thing is something that I've always been fascinated with mm. for police members because when they first come out to the degree that they did with all of your equipment, I used to mm. look and go, oh, my God, do yeah. you get sore hips or a sore back? And like anyone with half a brain would say, yes, that's probably what happens. But to actually hear somebody say it is actually mm. quite uncomfortable. Oh, it's very cumbersome, yeah. And, and getting look, out the vehicle. Well, that's, yeah, really difficult. And I think that's why a lot of members do have back and hip issues. Yeah. Because you've... Yeah, it's very difficult getting in and out of the vehicles because obviously they're not made for people that have guns on their hips and yeah. that sort of thing. It's not um, like they bend like a gun or no, your baton doesn't bend, so it's not right. like you can get comfy yeah. in there. You're sort of propped yeah. up in it. Yeah. I noticed a general the other day, uh, where was I, maybe in Geelong, and I noticed that he actually had a lot more on his chest, like on yeah. a vest. So they brought the vests in then and that allowed people to put the baton and the spray and the handcuffs and more more equipment onto their vest. Yeah. So that sort of distributes the weight 
gets it off your hips yeah. and um, it's more evenly distributed. But, of course, those vests are quite heavy too. And in the summertime, it's... That's next shocking. question. Yeah. How do you go in the summer with all that? Absolutely. And if you get called to a car accident or something when you're out doing traffic direction and mm. things like that in 30-degree heat, yeah, yeah, it's not very comfortable. No, look, I know from paramedic days, if you have, you know, especially the big accidents on the highway mm. and stuff, you're there for hours. Yeah. And in the heat and you've got someone trapped, it gets a bit... You know, it's challenging and I, yeah. and I don't cope well with the heat. Yeah. And yeah, I can remember when I was working in Warrnambool, uh, we got called to a fairly bad accident scene and oh, it was a stinky hot day. Mm -hmm. And Jules knows my face just goes bright red when I'm hot uh -huh. because I don't really perspire a lot. Yeah. And yeah, I remember my offside looking at me goes, oh my God, Chaz, go and sit in the van. <laughs> Put the air conditioner on. I think he thought I was about to pass out. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, having all that equipment on. And, and, and you know, you, you're moving around. It's often heavy loads. You've got to lift. You've got to cramp. Well, for us, you know, you have to get inside vehicles and stuff yeah. to get patients out. So, yeah, look. And as you get a bit older, <laughs> nothing harder. works quite as well as it used to. <laughs> and, look, the shift work too. Yes. You know, I joined, when I joined at 38, that was something I hadn't really given much thought to. Um, all I knew was I wanted a change in career and I wanted to do something that was challenging and different every day. Yeah. But I didn't think about and I, with night shift, oh, my God, I really struggled back then. Yeah. And back then, police had the most ridiculous rosters. Mm -hmm. You'd work seven nights. You'd finish at 7 a.m. on the... Sunday morning, so you'd start Sunday night, you'd work seven nights, finish at 7 a.m. on the Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. You'd have to be back at work at 3 p.m. that oh, afternoon. Wow. To do another eight-hour shift. Oh, the good old arcade so, rosters, huh? Oh, whereas now they have that last Sunday as a recovery day. So Even still, it takes days yeah. to get overnight oh, shift. Mm. And I don't sleep well during the day. Yeah. That's Jules. Yeah. You know, I used to be awake by midday and just couldn't get back to sleep. I think night shift is something you can either cope with really well or you just bomb. Yeah. When I started nursing, we used to do a month of night shift and you'd have like two or three days mm -hmm. off and then you'd come back and do an 11 nights mm -hmm. straight and then you'd have one off and it was yeah. hideous to say mm -hmm. the least. Yeah, look, it's pretty unforgiving shift work in general, mm -hmm. even just the roll through of late shifts that get really late, yeah. you know, seven o'clock in the morning, you don't sleep, mm -hmm. you've had big jobs. Yeah. That sort of stuff. But so when I say you're busy living your best life now, <laughs> no shift work, no. <laughs> Absolutely. No four o'clock alarm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And when we first got together, I still had a house down in Warrnambool. But on days off, I'd come down here. Mm -hmm. And when I was due to start a night shift, I'd leave here at 8.30 on the Sunday night, drive to Warrnambool, work a night shift, go and stay at my place for 10 days. Yeah. And then um, you get a six-day break. But for the first three, I'd be just hopeless because yeah. you're trying to get your body back to sleeping at normal times. Yeah. So. And the world's a different place at night time. Yes. Isn't it? A very different place. Yeah. What you see through the day mm. feels really kind of a bit normal, but lots of stuff goes on mm. once it gets to dark time. <laughs> <laughs> and especially in your job, you would see that yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not sad to leave? It's just time? the right time? It's just time. Yeah. yeah. And look, I've done 18 years. There's members that have done, you know, I've got friends that have just retired and they've done over 30 years. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, because I joined later, it's not my identity. Yes. That it was my job. Yes. Whereas a lot of people struggle. The ones that have done 35 years and that. 40, some people. Some, you know. That's their identity. They're a cop. I totally yeah. understand that. Whereas that's not me. Yeah. I've never, yeah. And I've always had friends outside police. Yeah. I've got some very good friends in the police force, but because I joined late in life, I already had that circle of friends outside mm -hmm. police. So any family members that are police officers? No. no. Jules is the one with the yeah. police background. So, Shaz, what actually made you join the police force in the first time? Look, I've mainly done admin work. Mm -hmm. So I worked at a dental surgery in the reception area for 10 years. I worked at a real livestock real estate agent reception. 
psychiatric hospital, Briley Hospital in Warrnambool when it was Good grief, I remember that. Because yeah. I nursed down there for oh, 18 you? months, yeah. Gosh, yeah. I'd forgotten that. So I worked in admin there for oh, three or four years, I suppose. That um, would have probably given you a bit of an insight too. Yeah, well, that was the time when Jeff Kennett decided to close them all down, put the, the acute units yeah. at the hospitals. and So I actually took a package then because they wanted to get rid of the public servants. Mm-hmm. So we're all public servants that worked at Brightly. Right. Um, they were offering us packages mm-hmm. to get out, so I thought, oh, I'll take a package. And then, yeah, I took a package and then travelled up to Queensland for a little while and packed tomatoes up in Bowen. Mm-hmm. Um, lived up there for a while and just, yeah, we did odd jobs. Practical work. Yeah. You've, got to, you've got to do practical and brainstorm, mm-hmm. don't you, to keep your yeah. life somewhere mm-hmm. near balanced. Yes. And then I came back to Warrnambool and... Yeah, worked at the dental surgery for 10 years or so. Yeah. Took a break from there and then drove dump trucks in Kalgoorlie oh, for a while. You rock. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. So, Why did you drive dump yeah. trucks in Kalgoorlie? And That's I a rough in, world, isn't it? Yes, it's a different. And coincidentally, Jules lived over there too, which we didn't realise at the time okay. because we didn't know each other then. But, yeah, it's funny. We've sort of had similar... Well, you've lived up in Queensland, you've um, lived over in Kalgoorlie, and I've lived over there too. Yeah, it's funny how we sort of thought, oh, yeah, I've done that too. It's usually what happens. Mm. You have all these commonalities yeah. come up. And from the dump trucks, then you joined? From the dump trucks, yeah, it was, I considered joining the police force. Well, actually, the reason I went over to WA was I had applied for the police force here, mm-hmm. and they said, look, Come back in 12 months, you'll need more life experience. Oh, good Lord, at what age? Yeah, 38 or whatever. Well, I would have been 36 or so then. Yeah, because you hadn't been around long enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and look, to be honest, I think at the time they had that many applicants. Yeah. Um, the academy was choppers mm-hmm. because I knew a guy that lived in Warrnambool at the time and we had applied at the same time. He got told, yes, you've been accepted. Mm-hmm. I got told to come back in 12 months. We both ended up at the academy in the same, at the same time because he waited all that time to get called into the academy. Gosh. I came back, reapplied, and basically got in straight away. So I drove dump trucks over in Western Australia in that time. I thought, oh, well, surely, you know, I'm working in Kalgoorlie. <laughs> that will be enough. In the fire. <laughs> in the Kalgoorlie fire, yes. The Wild West. Because I had good friends that lived over there and that's how yeah. I ended up over there. They said, oh, come over here, work in the mines for a while. Yeah. Uh, so I got my heavy rigid truck licence here in Victoria and then went over there and got driving the dump trucks. Mind you, you don't get straight into the dump trucks. You've got to work your way up. So you're yeah. doing pretty crappy jobs yeah, you prior to getting a gig in the trucks. You've got to prove your worst. I was picking up sticks, Yeah. you know, out of the old... The diggers would dig up old mines, mine shafts, so they'd be wood and whatever. They'd spread it out on the ground and we'd have to go on and pick all the sticks out. So you'd be doing that 12 hours a day. Yeah. And night shifts as well. Oh, yeah. So it was pretty tough. Yeah, yeah, and then if you make the grade. Then, yeah, oh, yeah, they're going to stick around. Because you had a lot of people who just come and go. Yeah, so they true. don't want to put in the effort of training you in the trucks if they think you're not going to stay long. Yeah, look, and, and that's true, of course. Mm. You need staying power out there, don't you? And they do prefer women driving the dump trucks. Oh, yes. Oh. They, yeah, they look after the trucks a lot better. They don't think, oh, wow, well, you know, going to hoot around. Women are a lot more sensible. Than... I've got a friend that's been in construction for many years mm. and he said exactly the same thing. The women actually will, if they hear a noise in the vehicle, he said they actually do pretty well because they're just a bit more astute and mm. looking after the vehicles and stuff. Yeah. So that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and I did consider joining the police force over there, but then I thought, oh, hang on a minute, I could get posted anywhere, mm. you know, in the outback. Derby. Stinking mm. heat. Oh, I'm thinking, oh, dear. oh no. Oh, no, dear. No, 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 no. Marble bar, gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was the reason I didn't apply. I, I just thought, not nah, too hot. Yeah, I'll look out of coat. Yeah, sure. So mm-hmm. came back to Victoria, reapplied, got in straight away. This is history, and now you're going out the back door. Exactly. I'm in the front door. Eight and now the later, yeah. just had enough. Yeah. So, Jules, your 
your family has been in the police force, is that correct? Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah, my dad did over 46 years um, in two different stints. He resigned in 77 when he, you know, like a lot, had a bit of a gutful. He should have just taken his long service. So we went around Australia then, but did it in three months. Then yeah. lived in Queensland for a while and then he came back in. He's then in your 40s was harder to find a job where now people, you know, are employable in 50s and 60s and it's a bit of a different world, thankfully. Um, yeah. So he came back in 1979 and um, my older half-brother, his son, did over 40 years, so he did the old 19 till his 60s. Own a oh, that's a hell of a stint, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So between well, Sharon and Dad and my brother and um, my younger brother, unfortunately, got six months in because he was a police officer murdered in Wall Street in 1988 um, at 20 years of age. But, yeah, between the four, it's, you know, what, 100 years service pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, mm. but that's massive. Mm. So you've just said your mm. younger brother, Damien. That's right, yeah, DJ's namesake. Mm. So tell me about DJ, your beautiful <laughs> dog's name. Yeah, so... Um, uh, when you grow up, my dad had retrieving Labradors that he bred and I loved them and then I'd cry when they'd have pups and they would get sold. Um, and I had pets for my now adult kids, you know, cats and dogs, and it was always their pets. But, yeah, when um, our Labrador died, which was my son's dog, I said to Sharon, yeah, I'd like another big dog. And it took me 12 months to convince her that, that was a good idea. And, I, and the whole idea was I said, I want, some, I want one for me. This is going to be my dog. Yeah. Family breeder in Drysdale. I saw him online. I wanted a, a white or a chalky coloured boy. Picked him out and um, yeah, paid his deposit two weeks old and we picked him up at eight weeks old. Oh, did you um, go and visit him while he was a puppy? Yeah, we did. Yeah. So once they get to five weeks and they've had their vaccination, she's very open to coming to see them and to you know see how that it's in a, it was on an acreage in Drysdale. It was really lovely. Yeah. Um, so you can sort of bond. Yes. Yeah, get have lots of cuddles and kisses, and, oh. and then um, yeah, <laughs> don't you love him? And yes, yeah, so I decided to, I wanted to call him after Damien, Damien Jeffrey, so yeah, DJ. Gosh, that's really tough. I can't even imagine what you've both been through, and you know your dad and your mum and what have mm. you. Yeah, they um, look, Dad was probably more fortunate because he had the police force to you know support him and surround him, and they all understood. The police family's been amazing to us over the 35 years nearly. Mum, I can't imagine what it could be like, you know, having had my own children now yeah. to lose your child and, and, and a 20 and have them murdered. So, yeah, very brave. But, you know, I think you have to embrace the life that you've got and put one foot in front of the other and try to make it as good as you can. Yeah. And hence, like I said, you mm-hmm. two are choosing to lose to lose <laughs> to, to lose the worries yeah. and choose your best lives now because mm. you have to take every day yeah. yeah you have to make that decision if you want it to happen and you know it's to, to travel is hard because your family and your friends miss you and miss them too but at the same time you want if you want to see things and have some freedom and, and I'm very lucky because the company I work for are amazing and because it's a it's a um a remote job you can do remotely. I can do it anywhere from the motorhome, broadband, internet. I might have to get Starlink if we start to go. <laughs> if you go west in the yeah. west again. Lots of caravanners have got Starlink. You see those little dishes, satellite dishes in the caravan parts. It's quite funny. And, it, and out in the bush. Yeah, and so we'll buy a place somewhere at some point. Um, but living the sort of bit of a nomadic sort of life and seeing things and meeting people, is it's it's been freeing. And it's enjoyable and, you know, the motorhome's got a shower and toilet so it's very comfortable and it's got a great, you know, nice comfy bed. Yeah. But it's, yeah, the people we meet and the people you meet do it, you know, doing it for that freedom and, I don't Mm. know, finding themselves. It might be just a bit cheesy but... Oh, no, it's nothing cheesy. It's a choice. Mm. Sorry, I'll just cut you off. No, no, no. I'm so much about that. Yeah. Because we spend so much of our lives doing what we think we should do for other people mm, um, yeah. and even when we you know often we care as of family members or we put ourselves in that position mm, being yeah, responsible yeah. for our family members but all of a sudden you're down the track at the you know tender age of 50 something mm. and it's like well it's time to get out and have a look around mm, yeah and we've met some amazing people mm. and we've you know during COVID, obviously, it was the travel within Victoria 
And then we went up to Queensland last year because I had some work commitments up there and we went to the Territory last year and back to Queensland this year. It, yeah, it's, I mean, Australia is an amazing country and I completely understand people who want to travel overseas and we have travelled overseas a little bit, but we just decided we wanted to see things from the ground in a slower manner and not yeah. be as rushed. And you meet some amazing people, a lot of women travelling on their own, people who have lost their partners but still wanted to travel, people who were doing it in panel vans, rooftop tents, all sorts of, but just going, no, I want to travel and I want to get out there. I made a choice uh, two years back to actually travel. I bought a van and a car. I travelled on my own for nearly six months up through New South and Queensland. And the freedom, mm-hmm. I, I called it my gap year because I went straight out of school into nursing so I really didn't do it and my kids are of the age now where they're all doing their own thing but to just drive down a road that's not the main Mm. road I saw the most magnificent little towns and people fantastic and really supportive people you know oh Mm. I want to hand you back a van would you like me to do it for you Mm. or come and sit with us and it opens your world right up and you form some really fabulous friendships Mm. you do and just seeing amazing things, as you said. Turning that, you know, if you see a sign, turn left, just do it. Mm. Don't, we, you know, we've been up and down the highway a bit, but also, you know, some of the small towns and we've camped behind pubs and clubs yeah, yeah. to and fro. Stayed at amazing, you know, stayed at lovely caravan, caravan parks in lovely tourism areas, but also, you know, stayed at a, a bush camp um, near Howard in Queensland. And, and that was exceptional, you know, the, the couple that have built that from 40 acres and, yeah, and you do, you just meet some really amazing, lots of great nomads, lots of retirees, but as I said, because we've done some of those women's travelling groups as well, um, so many women that might have had, you know, difficult circumstances and backgrounds and that's given them the freedom and the safety to travel with other women in all sorts of setups and yeah. um, all sorts of walks of life, vets, yeah. vets to dentists to paramedic, what a friend, yeah. you know, paramedic to retired people to... Um, people are farms and yeah and I think fortunately unfortunately like who knows but there's a lot of women perhaps at this age group mm. middle to late 50s mm. that are on their own now mm, yeah, for different yeah. circumstances mm. and so to have a, a safe place mm. to travel and stuff is really important mm. yeah. Isn't yeah it? it is very important yeah did you find that a lot of places obviously couldn't take the dogs in mm. and camp yeah, so we know that national parks are off the agenda, but we, you know, we sort of think, well, that just is what it is. We won't go to Tassie while we have DJ, mm-hmm. so that's way down. Then it's down the track, and hopefully, it's a lot of years down the track. Yeah, because I'm just fearful of putting him in the cage. And I know that lots of people have done it, and I'm not saying it's not a bad that it's a bad experience, but he is a bit sulky and a bit sensitive. You mean to travel over on the boat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can sign a waiver, and they can travel in your vehicle, but you can't go and visit them. But even on the Queenscliff Ferry, he wets his pants. Yeah. Like he, gets, he basically sits on our knee because yeah. of the creaking and the loud engines. And sure. So we've been yeah. over to Portsea a bit because my cousin's got a place over there. But, yeah, so that longer trip would be on his own. To be on his own. Not have yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. We wouldn't want to put him No. So there's lots of places. So we know that there's lots of the agenda. But we find you tend to find the dog-friendly cafes <laughs> and <laughs> restaurants and then he realises that that's the local and he tries to turn it there every time he walks past it. So he's, um, he's a very well-travelled alfresco, knows lots of cafes, clubs, pubs, restaurants, you name it, you can find them. And just out of interest, how many leads has he got today? Mm, yeah. Did a new one. Yeah. <laughs> a new lead. He's got a salty dog one. Jules <laughs> couldn't find his and then found it in her pocket. Ah. Yeah. That happens quite a bit. <laughs> he's got pajamas. He's got a lovely sheepskin coat. Not real sheepskin. No. Yeah, but a warm yeah. coat. Nice pink raincoat, which I think he's a bit embarrassed getting around in that. Uh-huh. That's the only colour. Mm. But Celine had a whole wardrobe <laughs> full of clothes from wardrobe. all our travels. Yeah. She had outfits from Hong Kong and New York and all over the place, didn't she? God, they're yeah. so spoiled, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes. They are. Um, so, Jules, can I just ask about your dad? Mm-hmm. You said he was in the service for how long? Yeah, 46 years and something or other months. Sorry, Dad, I can't remember. Where Where did he work from? Mm-hmm. Was he stationed, is he metro or was he rural? Mainly Shepparton. So did South Melbourne and would have terrorised South Melbourne in a, on a police motorbike with a sidecar in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> I think he joined in 1960. He ended up in Shepparton in about, well, before I was born, 65, so 
don't know, 62, 3, something like that. Yeah, spent most of his policing there till he resigned in 77 and then when he came back in 79, did five years in Benalla mm-hmm. and then went back to Shepparton again. So yeah, did yeah. most of his policing in Shepparton around that Golden Valley. So. I imagine he's got some stories to tell too. He does have a few stories. He's had a gun pulled on him when they were going to a robbery late at night and he said it was my fault. He said because I climbed through this hole and I looked up and the gun was there and he said I had my gun on the outside of the door. Uh-huh. So they'd cut a hole in a... I think it was like a camping business, I think, from memory. And then in February 1966, he found Gary Haywood's car when Gary Haywood and Abena Medill went missing and were later found to be murdered. Who? Um, and then he was in the CIB in Benalla at the time when he ended up getting arrested, Mr Stinky, in 1983. And um, because Dad, um, when he found Gary's car, he knew that Gary was a mad cow lover and his family still involved in panel weeding businesses and he knew that Gary wouldn't have just left his car randomly there. So because it was left like that and Dad obviously thought it was quite suspicious and unusual, he preserved the scene and the fingerprints were preserved mm-hmm. and that's how Mr Stinky was um, connected to the murder, the double murder, when they took his fingerprints when he was flashed in Albury. What was the time frame between him? Yeah, 66 to 83, I believe, that he was arrested. When he flashed? Check. Yes, yeah. And in that meantime, he's also a serial rapist um, and that's where he got the name because he'd worked in abattoirs and, and the rape victim said he always had a certain smell. So he did a lot of rapes around, I believe, around Doncaster and the eastern suburbs. Um, so, yeah, he's not a, it wasn't just a one-off thing and those poor unfortunate young couple got murdered. And, yeah, that's where his name came from because he had that, obviously, certain smell from working in abattoirs oh. all, all around the place. Yes. And so that's why the crimes were widespread out. Goodness me. So 20 years later, mm. what was it that got him 20 years later? Yeah, so he was in, apparently he was in his car in Dean Street, I think it was in Albury, one of the main streets, and he was exposing himself. Mm-hmm. And a young woman saw um, that he was doing it and contacted the police. So he got arrested. And at that time, I think in Victoria, you could yeah, you could say, no, you're not taking my prints. Mm-hmm. I think that's changed now. But in New South Wales, he had no choice, so they printed him and the prints were matched between the two crimes and then obviously the rapes and everything else. So, and that's what it was, just doing something that people go, oh, you know, I mean, it's an awful thing, but it's, yeah. you know, they would think it's the bottom end of the scale yes. of weird things that some people do. But because she reported it and he got arrested, it was those fingerprints were matched to that murder and then all these other rapes because he'd, he'd raped women by entering their homes. So he would, there would have been fingerprints from those scenes. Yeah. So goodness me, Andrew Rule wrote a book called The Cuckoo, and that's all about that. So Dad and lots of other coppers ran Shepherd and mine to be contributed to that book. Gosh, mm-hmm. God, how does your Dad sleep some nights? How do how do you sleep some nights, mm. Shaz? You know this stuff is phenomenal, isn't mm. it? Well, I think Dad, he's just turned eighty-eight. I think no police officer gets out of there without some level of head noise. We have friends call it. So oh. it might be enough of a head noise that you can deal with it, but it might be so bad that it has a big impact on your life. He probably, because he joined a bit later at the time in his 20s and he worked for the Forestry Commission in Barma, around Barma, I think because he had a whole other life. His closest friends were, he's got a few copper mates, mm-hmm. but that wasn't his, he wasn't enmeshed in just that. So mm-hmm. fishing, camping, yeah. rabbiting, that was his life and he has a big network outside of the police force. So I think he could escape. And I don't think he was really caught up. It wasn't his identity because he, he said he only joined because one of his friends wanted to join. He said, come with me and we'll go together. And Dad said, I don't think I'd get him. So he said, he got him, I got him, and that was that. And that was that. And it's like mm-hmm. when they headed off to the army all those years mm-hmm. ago, just, yeah. you know, going to sign up and next thing the whole life's changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kudos to him, credit to mm-hmm. you guys, for anyone who's in that position. I don't think it's... It's a really it's a tough job. Ambo's, you know, we second in line. Well, nowadays you're probably job. first in line a lot of times too because mm, we don't exactly. have any defence mechanisms, but, you know, the police are there, they always back us up. Mm. I'm saying us now, but I'm not in the service anymore. But, yeah, there's a lot of trust that goes on mm. because we know that they're coming to help us out. It's an unforgiving job, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But you've got both of you <laughs> such a ripper time ahead of you. So you're going back to Queensland now in your motorhome? Yeah, well, we've got a couple of weeks um, just spending time with my parents, um, the next couple of weeks, and then we're actually not sure, but we'll try and chase the sun a bit because I feel better when the, I can feel the warmth on my skin and mm-hmm. see the sun out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, we've got a couple of other things planned, you know, Monday, Monday bash. And, and, oh, uh, yeah. 
um, a gig in, in November. Yeah, we're sort of, it's a bit of chewing and froing at the minute for us, but next year we'll try and do a longer trip prior to my mum's 80th of up the centre and around the west coast and visiting friends in Perth and doing Margaret River. And we sort of figured that'll be four or five months because it's a long way. Yeah. And we want to meander more and take that time more. We're scheduled. I think that's what is hard when we all work. You've got a schedule and, and yeah. you know, that schedule is not dictated by you all the time. It's mm-hmm. dictated by, you know, your employer and sometimes they're great like the one I currently have, but other times, it, you know, it's not so great. And all your kids' schedules. We're at a time where we just want less less schedule, less um, less movement when we can and mm-hmm. we're not staying at a place at near that place at Powered. We were originally going to be there four days and we stayed eight yes. because we could. I would place to sit, visit that area too, but just a nice relaxing being in the bush. I love visiting the bush. I love holidaying in the bush. I do love the, the coast, the ocean. I've loved Torquay, just a bit nippy for me in winter. Um, a lot of maybe. I like shorts, t-shirt, Birkenstocks, and it's just what colour. So, Shaz, do you think will you do any other work? No, I don't. Is there something of interest that you'd like to do that you haven't had a chance to do? Nothing that I can think of. You probably mm-hmm. haven't had enough time to absorb. No, it's been pretty full on making the decision to leave. Yeah, and yeah, and nice. if you're still in the process of that, you have, yeah. you've got to. Close that out. Mm. It was a pretty, pretty big step, you know, last week or the week before when I went down to the office and handed my badge in. And, yeah, I bet. You know, cleaned out my locker and, yeah, I sort of walked out there thinking, wow, you know, 18 years, done. It's a whole world, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know, when you're in a career for that amount of time. Mm. And like you said before, and there are a lot, and this happens in the ambulance service a lot too. People have been in for many, many years, become that. Mm-hmm. Their identity is that. Mm-hmm. And when they go to take that shirt off, who are they? It's like they're mm-hmm. totally exposed. Like, yeah. who am I? Yeah. It's a difficult thing. That's where I think it's the people that join really young in life. That's all they know then. Their friends are police officers. So even socially, they're with yeah. police officers. Don't have a life outside. Talking life. about the job. And, you know, all Yes. That. You need interests outside yeah. and you need friends that aren't yeah. connected with it as well. Yeah. Um, but I think there's just a fear with a lot of people. It's not even just those sorts of jobs where people go, oh, I'm going to buy a caravan or I'm going to travel when I retire. And they don't actually pinpoint when that retirement is. Um, and I know too many members that have been in way too long. And I've said to them now, you know, when are you going to pull the pin? Oh, you know, just give it another couple of years. I'll just keep that just bit more super. Yeah. Bit more super. Yeah. That's yeah, it. Exactly. Mag- magical number. We know of too many people that don't get to enjoy that. Don't always have your health. Some people don't get to 60. So, you know, so thinking that you're waiting to 65 or 70 oh, to do exactly. something. You don't always have your health. You're not always as physically just, able. But also some people don't get that chance to have that longer life and you have to sort of embrace it and go, no, I want to do it, so I need to make a decision to do it. I think, you know, people go, oh, when I get to that age or when I get to this, mm. then I'll be happy. Yeah. Mm. You've got to be, you got to find happy now. Like you can't go to find happy. No. Because if you don't try and work out what happy is now in this moment, by the time you get over there to find it. Yeah. You don't even know what it is. So, and it's like you said, the super, how much is enough? You just want enough to be able to fill up the tank. And look, that's where we're probably different. Mm-hmm. Jules has made me really, you know, I worry, oh, we've got enough money, you know, oh, I'll work another couple of years. And then when I got, you know, diagnosed with my back issue, and my doctor basically said, if you want to travel and do things, you need to do it sooner rather than later because you're not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. Yeah. And you can't really do much about it apart from trying to stay active and walking and whatever. Yeah. It's not like you could drop 10 kilos, you know, you haven't got that to drop, so there's nothing you can do physically to make it less stressful on your back. So that that was a turning point for me. I just thought, "Mm, you know, I don't want to be that person that stays at work too long Mm -hmm. and then I'm not physically able to do what we want to do. And look Um, at the, besides the people we've met, look at the great trips we've had, whether it's a week or a weekend or a few weeks with all the people around us that also love travelling. Mm. So lots of our friends who have bought yeah. caravans and, and um, you know, of all different sizes and ages and whatever, and they'll go, hey, we're going to go here for the weekend. You want to come? Yep, great, right, we'll go there. Yeah. So you socialise in that way and you sit around the fire and you get to see more of them. We've got a, a friend who's an ex-member and his wife converted a big bus and um, they had a subsequent business after he left the police force and, and now they you know, got the bus and whatever. He just goes, oh, I might go that way, you know, I might go this way and we're going to chase the sun a bit and, 
Um, we've had quite a few, you know, weekends with, with them as well. And it's great because you get to, you're outside of your, not too much your comfort zone, but you don't have to sit in your house and have a coffee or a glass yeah. of wine. You can go somewhere and go for walks and sit around the fire and have, have the chats. There's so much gold in chats, isn't there? Mm. I'm absolutely loving doing this podcast because I have met the most sensational people and the story, and I say stories, but their lives, their mm. life story, stories has mm. been incredible. And people think, oh, no, I'm just doing my thing. Mm. Holy moly, you're doing a hell of a thing. Mm. And there's always something to learn from somebody else, yep. I reckon. Yep. So I'm just loving it. And to hear your experiences incredible you know there's laughter and tears and pain mm. and all sorts in this today mm. can i ask a question before mm. we wrap this up mm-hmm. so dj is probably yours so i'll address yes. you Jules. <laughs> sharon's trying to steal him though but anyway. <laughs> yeah well it's good sharing isn't it <laughs> he's gorgeous yeah. if you could tell him something and you knew he could hear what you were mm. going to say to him what would it be wow that's something i've never thought of um, is he happy? Dogs always seem happy. Mm. But we think he loves travelling because he's with us 24-7. So, mm. you know, the pack animals, they love to be with you. We don't go anywhere without him. Is he happy? Maybe. What if you want to tell him something, like what he means to you? Or I think we always don't. We tell them how much we love them and, you know, no. kiss them and all the rest of them. Yeah, oh, it would be great to have a conversation. Ask him if he misses Celine. Yeah, oh, certainly tell him. I mean, I tell him I love him. I presume he does understand that, but <laughs> yeah. quite often, you know, I'll be, oh, I love you, darling. Yeah. I think it's Sharon yeah. makes a joke. Sharon makes a joke. I said, oh, yeah. Oh, you don't I'm think it's you. <laughs> you know I'm saying it. I go. And she's <laughs> talking to the dog. Yeah. Hello, <laughs> hello, my darling. Sharon goes, yeah. I go, oh, hi. I was the same as We've met so many. We get stopped. Like we say, if we went walking in the holiday place, the place we've been away, if we went walking and there was just the two of us, we would never get stopped where people would go, oh, where are you from? What are you mm-hmm. We get stopped because, what sort of dog is that? Can I have a pet? <laughs> and you go, yep. And I say to him, because he can be a little bit, some men, um, bothering, mm-hmm. but and I just say, you know, I say hello. And if they take their time at this life, they come in with a bit of a force and over him, he doesn't like it. Sure. I hate to think how many, not hate to think, love to think how many people we've met oh, that stop us. And we say, absolutely. no one would stop two silly old women walking along, but when you've got a beautiful, big, white, fluffy dog, they stop us all the time. Mm-hmm. And we meet people everywhere. Yes. Men, women, kids, older, younger. It is, it's fascinating. And it's just, and it's always that question of, can I pet your dog? What yeah. sort of a dog is it? Well, what did I do the other day? Yeah. 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 You mind yeah. if I pet your dog? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but we've met so many people yes. because of that. And you really, you can really see that when you see, you know, a lot of say older widows and they've got their little dog and they're walking. And if they didn't have that little dog, they wouldn't leave the house. Yes. And it gets them out of the house and it gets them to meet people, and it's that company for them forever. Our wish has always been, if we ever won Powerball or Oslotto, I wanted to have a dog charity, which I think there is one out there, dog and cat charity, where you could put dogs and cats um, with people who could normally not afford it. Mm-hmm. So you'd have rescue animals, but you'd pay for all the vet bills and help them with food. Because yeah. when I was a single mum and my kids were young, I know they used to talk to the cat. Yeah. Kids do that because yeah. that's their best thing. They can tell those cat, they, those things that they can't, you know, don't feel they can tell their parents. And so I said to Shane, that would be my dream, to support people to have that so that the, the dog and the cat goes to a great home, but then that person who normally couldn't afford all those extra things mm-hmm. can have that company. And Because yeah. I know what it, what it means to kids, what it means to adults, what it means to couples, families, mm-hmm. single people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, they they are expensive, mm. you know. You do have to be able to pay for the vet bills. And, mm. and the outfits from yeah. China and all that. It's got to be paid for, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So it is sad for people that would love to have a pet and can't afford it, mm. you know. Because, yeah. yeah. And it's sad for people that have got pets that something happens to them and, and they've got to make that decision. That oh, decision. my God, you know, I can't afford that vet bill. Yes. And, you know, how good it would be to be able to help those people. And, yeah. So they don't have to make that horrible decision. It might be in your next lifetime. Mm. Once you get all this sorted and get Mm. back on the road. Because they are. They're so important. And we've noticed now there's a lot more places that you can take them now. Even caravan parks. One time, caravan parks that were dog-friendly were the ones 
you wouldn't want to yeah. go to. Whereas now it's all about people travelling with their pets, yeah, um, which is really good. Even dog friendly cabins. So some have got yeah. cabins that are still pet friendly. Mm -hmm. The Sands have got pet friendly rooms now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so you know the new owners when they've mm -hmm. um, revamped it all, they've got some pet friendly rooms. So I think they're realising that. It is their companion. Like, he's definitely my therapy dog. I'd like him to be trained to take him to hospitals and aged care and, and, you know, get him to do those things or schools. One of my daughters has got a girl as well who's from the same place but, and her little girl who's one just loves that dog and they love each other. Mm -hmm. And the dog is always looking, you know, if she cries and my daughter and her husband don't attend to her straight away, the dogs are looking, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> hey, baby, you know. Baby cat. She's upset. And you can just see how good it is um, mm -hmm. that she's growing up around a dog and a cat. And my other granddaughter, it's got, they've got a cat, but, of course, she loves DJ. You know, yeah. she, she always asks after us and, and DJ. Uh, so, you know, having them be comfortable around dogs and, and yeah, you know, fabulous. growing up around them, um, dogs and cats, is, is really good. Yeah. So it would be great to really be able to be in a position to help people to, to have that because you know that how much it would benefit people, particularly the people who are lonely or PTSD or... Yeah. I believe there's a program called Story Dogs and it's where the dog goes into schools. I've seen that. Kids I've can that. sit and yep. read to the dog. Yeah. What a fabulous thing yeah. that is. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And there's been some... We met uh, an ex-member who's sadly passed away and we met his service dog, Yogi, mm -hmm. who was trained in the prison system when we went on the police wall-to-wall -wall ride a few years ago. And I said to Sharon, I'm going to get a pat of that dog. And I know it has a coat, it says, please don't pat me. But I asked him, because he went everywhere, Yogi, because he was his actual service, more than more than a therapy dog. Mm -hmm. And he was actually trying to, that member or ex-member was trying to get um, it funded so that those dogs would go to more members. So mm -hmm. training the prison system and then members with severe PTSD with this dog. And he said, he's my best friend. He said, yeah. He keeps me alive and he had a lot of difficulties, you know. He said the dog would wake him up when he was having a really bad night terror. The dog used to touch him on the yeah. chest and Isn't that it, it was stuff. exceptional. Like, and when you think, I get goosebumps thinking about Gogi and um, what he meant to Ron and how he, he definitely kept Ron alive for a long time and it's simple things that could be done to really help people. Oh, there's so much you work with the police department, the sexual assault unit. Mm -hmm. They've got a dog that just hangs in the office. Yeah. If members are, you know, they've got to look at some shocking things on the computer or whatever, the dog knows when they've been on that computer too long and they need a break, he'll just grab a teddy bear and go and pop, oh, pop it on their lap. you kidding. And that's to say, righto, you need a break. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. It's amazing what they can do. Our emotions. And, and that's so, why we sit here talking today <laughs> because that's, that's what this is about. Yep. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming and having a chat Thank with you. us today. Thank, thanks for telling me the other way that what you were doing and inviting us along. It's, yeah, incredible. Thank both you. of your stories, amazing. I admire both of you and your big pictures and mm -hmm. where you're going. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.